hand, he held my hand. I was the most important person in his life in that moment. And I will never forget the impact that made it. That and Father McGrail's reaching out to parents have taught me to, to try to greet people where they are and understand they come in with, with a, a lot of hurt in their lives, but, but more promise in their lives. And I think it's really important to try to lift people up and not just find Jesus or God in them, but you've got to bring God and Jesus to them. Welcome to Living As You. I'm Patrick Quinn, a brain enthusiast, mental health advocate, and aspiring medical professional. And I'm here today to break down the stories behind the curtain, the moments of inspiration, the defining moments of our lives, and the shaping influences that have led inspiring leaders to live a life authentically to themselves. This week's conversation is with John Gladstone, a former Jesuit teacher, administrator, and president over the course of 53 years. After growing up in Chicago, John and his six siblings moved to Cleveland, where he began his Jesuit education soon after. John ended up going to college at Xavier University in Cincinnati, where he studied Latin and Greek. He began his teaching career at the age of 20 while still in school at Xavier. Over the course of the last 30 years, John taught at high schools all over the country, led as an associate vice principal at a Jesuit university in Ohio, and took on multiple leadership roles to expand Jesuit education. In 2005, he took a job at Jesuit High School in Portland, Oregon, where he excelled as president for the next 11 years until his retirement. Currently, John spends his time on the Oregon coast with his wife, Gina, in Ohio with his seven kids and five grandkids, and at Jesuit High School in Portland, assisting in developmental roles. He is a giant Cleveland Indians fan and enjoys daily walks with his dog. With that, let's jump in to this week's interview with John Gladstone. Good morning there, Patrick. John Gladstone, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Doing well. Is it nice in Portland? It, you know what? Today, so my dad and I, we went down to Blanche House today. So oh, we wow. said we wanted to say hi to Scott Kerman and the whole team for you. It's pretty okay. overcast, but again, a beautiful day yesterday. So who knows about today? Well, it was really sunny before. It's a little bit cloudy. The marine layer came in, but it's going to burn off probably by 1030 or 11. It's going to be a beautiful day here today and tomorrow. Did you go out for your morning walk already? I didn't go as far because I wanted to come back and shower and get, we had breakfast before I went out, but I only walked, I don't know, three quarters of a mile. I saw this older guy. He's so quiet. He's probably my age or a little older. He walks a really old dog and he barely says hi, but I always try to engage him and uh, today I said, Henry, how are you doing? Oh, okay. Did you get your vaccines yet? Yeah, we got the first one. I said, when's the second one? He said, March 17th. I said, oh, St. Patrick's Day. You can't miss. And uh, he's so quiet. I looked at him and I said, Henry, you know, I know you don't say much, but you have such good eyes. You look people in the eye when we talk and he just kind of smiled. But uh, I see him probably three times a week. And I said, how, how much do you walk every day? He said, oh, I walk eight or nine miles. And I said, Henry, I said, I thought 
walking four or five was great. I said, you're putting me to shame. But it was uh, such a great interaction. And his wife, I, I've never seen them together. She walks too, and she always carries a water bottle and has usually earplugs in. But uh, they're an interesting couple. But they live, you know, I don't know, a quarter mile away from us. They're really nice people, but quiet. Oh, my gosh. So I'm going to get him out of his shell. If anyone could do it, it's going to be you. It's going to be you. Isn't that so fun? When we go on the adventures of life, whether it's a walk on the beach, uh, a trip to Europe, going off to school, we just learn so much. And we meet so many wonderful people. And people like you may never see again, but they've touched your life. And people you might see every day of your life, and they're still going to touch your life. So It took me a long time to realize, Patrick, that uh, the journey is just as important or not more important than the destination. I think we've got to make sure we take time along the way to appreciate people and nature and faith and just the opportunities we have. Uh, it's so important. You are spot on. One thing I'm trying to do literally every day, and I know it's a figure of speech, is to actually stop and smell the roses, stop and smell flowers, actually stop, breathe, and recognize, man, just how grateful I am for the opportunity, as you said, to be alive and to live and just be. I'll tell you a good story. So this probably goes back to 19, maybe 92 or 93, to read Reader's Digest. I think my parents got me that as a gift. I love the little anecdotal stories in there. There was one about this. They, they were the, they were a farming family, and they were probably in their 60s. And there was this uh, woman, was the wife was having coffee with a friend. And uh, it was a rainy day, and the husband walked in. And just kind of wiped his feet when he came in, but he just walked across the floor and he left all these muddy tracks on the floor. And the, the friend said to the farmer's wife, you know, doesn't that make you mad? And she said, no, it used to. But she said, I'm just glad he's still able to do that. You know, it was really cute. And then she said, and I've learned over life uh, to take time to smell the flowers. And uh, so about a week later, I was going to Sunday mass and, and uh, I was walking out. And I'm always in a hurry. You know, we're always in a hurry in life. And there was an older couple that had stopped to look at the the new blooms on the flowers. And I thought, oh my gosh, they were holding hands. And I'm thinking, how important a lesson is this for me to always appreciate the little things and the good things in life. So it's, you know, big things are important. They clearly are. But I think we learn so much more from the little things in everyday life. And I always try to smile at people and I, I always try to bring a goodness to them. But uh you are spot on. You are spot on. One thing I've had to do, and then I'd love to love to dive into some of the questions, but the last couple of months, in order to kind of let myself rest a little bit more and remember that, I've literally kind of instituted a little rule in my life of don't rush, don't hurry. If something is not life-threatening, if you are not about to die, if someone doesn't need to go to the hospital, then there is no need to rush or move really fast because at the end of the day we have so much in our society that tells us we got to go 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 but in reality as you said it's the small things it's the journey that brings the fulfillment the joy not always the result like we always think about so it's helped me a lot trying to be like john gladstone here well don't follow my patterns when i i'm an impatient driver and if people are going too slowly or they, they pause too long in an intersection, I always call that person a Twinkie, as, as violent as I get. And I know it drives Gina nuts, but I, but I do. I'm, I'm an impatient driver. And I've got to 
So I've got that's the one area I could I could really well not the only area it's one area I can improve and I know so you're so funny. Well, hopefully this won't cut in or out as as much. I think this should be a little bit better. Well, the background's much better. Good. It, uh, we need some Indian swag. We need some Indians <laughs> Indian stuff. Um, well, that could be the Indians very long. So the world this season. <laughs> They're going to get a World Series one of these days. One of these days they will. I was talking to my brother Steve yesterday. We were laughing because back in the 90s, the Indians were by far the best offensive team in all of baseball. They were one stud pitcher away, and, but they were just amazing. I think in 1995, they had 28 come from behind wins, and they were never out of a game. And there are a couple of videos going around about that. And we still love those. But uh, then we thought, I always thought the Indians would win before my dad died or before their longtime announcer and baseball star died. Not mobile, I'm still alive. They'll win a World Series, but they're they're in a downward trend this year, maybe for the next couple, but I'm not giving up. They'll do it. They I know they will do it. Hey, what do you say we start diving into some of the Yeah, questions. that'd be great, Patrick. Thanks. We're already, we're already starting it, but I just wanted to again officially welcome you, John Gladstone, to the podcast. This is you don't know how many weeks, months I've been thinking about having you on. You've been such a phenomenal influence on my life. So just want to welcome you and so grateful to, to see you this morning. Well, Patrick, thank you. I appreciate the chance. I've told you before, I hope your ratings don't sink because of this podcast, but we'll see. I think the whole system's going to break because everyone <laughs> wants wants a little, little piece of John Gladstone, especially oh, yeah, everyone. Well, you exaggerate, but thanks. You're so funny. Hey, I'd love to start things off today by diving into your story and particularly your family life early on when you were growing up in Chicago and then Cleveland in the 1950s. What was life like as the second oldest of seven in Cleveland as a young boy? Well, I'm glad I wasn't the oldest because my sister bore the brunt of uh, stricter rules and all that stuff. But I really had a great upbringing. Oh my gosh. And things I remember in Chicago, you know, we lived in a, we lived with my grandparents, I think, when I was first born. But um, then we moved to this house in Des Plaines, where O'Hare Airport is. And we had a lot of fun. The neighbors, some great kids. And I remember one time uh, a car, a couple of women have been drinking. They hit the front steps of the house next door to us. If they had veered about 20 feet, they would have hit our house. And I can remember my dad waking me up and said, oh, come here, you got to look at this. So they were, the women should not be fine. I think also uh, one time there was a, a fire engine went by and my dad said, you want to go follow that? I go, yeah. So we followed and went to a, a, a garage fire where a, a combustion had come because of the rags in a, in a tightly lidded can. But just other things. Uh, I got in trouble once because I, I was probably four years old and I was throwing stones at a truck going by. Well, this one truck stopped. He knocked on the front door. I thought, oh no, I'm dead. And this guy came in and my, he told my dad what had happened. And my dad said, what do you say? I said, I'm really sorry. And the, the truck driver was so nice. He said, just realize you could have hurt somebody. And that was one of my early life lessons about, you know, not doing stupid things. And I always wanted this uh, fire engine for Christmas, one you could kind of ride in. That was my dream. But I don't think my parents could afford it. Frankly, it wasn't motorized. It was just a really cool looking thing. But we never got that. And one more thing in, in Chicago, when I was about five, I tried to climb the apple tree next door because there was a nest of robins in it. My one sister, Paula, who's next in line, she, she was probably about three or four. She helped me put a bike up to the tree and I climbed up this tree. Well, and I was looking into the nest and there were a couple uh, baby chicks and one egg that hadn't hatched yet. 
And all of a sudden, the, a guy across the street yells, get out of that tree. What are you doing? So I started to get down. My sister pulled the bike away. So I fell on the ground and broke my arm and the, uh, went in to get a cast. But that was my first badge of courage. But then we moved to Cleveland and uh, five of, our, of the Gladstone children were born in Chicago. Two were born in Cleveland. And we lived in a, a pretty small house that had uh, three bedrooms and, and a little nursery. And, um, but the tough thing was we had one full bath and a small, tiny half bath down off the kitchen downstairs. So there were nine of us that were in line to take a shower or a bath. And if my sisters got in the bathroom first, I was dead, even in the morning, because you know they you know, take just much more time. They look beautiful coming out. But So that was one challenge. But we lived in a neighborhood. There were a ton of kids. And uh, we were the last house built on our street. It was a new development. And our street was a dirt road that ended about 300 feet uh, north of us. and on the side of the road were ditches, were drainage ditches, and uh, so the water could run off on that. We would play, as the new houses were built, we'd play in the construction sites, and I don't think our parents realized how much we did in there, but I can remember when I was little, my maternal grandparents would drive from Chicago to see us in, in the winter for Christmas and stuff, and every time they would come, my poor grandpa would get stuck in these ditches next to the road, and my dad never complained. He would go out and help dig my grandfather out but I have great memories of my mom and dad and uh, my grandparents too. And I can remember watching Sputnik in 1957, which was the, the first satellite the, the Russians had launched. And my dad and I would watch this cross the sky. And that was a, just an, an amazing time for us. And I, you know, my grandfather died, I think when I was entering my freshman year in high school. And that crushed me because my grandfather was a great friend. He wasn't Catholic, even though my family was very Catholic. And, he would go to mass with us often on Sundays uh, and on Fridays, of course, we couldn't eat meat because we were Catholic. So he would drive me down to what were popular then the Howard Johnson restaurants and he would buy enough clams, fried clams for the entire family. And he'd always let me sample a couple on the way home, but that was our, our Friday venture whenever they were here. And also on, on Saturday mornings, he would drive me down to a real cool place, which is still in Cleveland, Little Italy. And he'd walk right into the bakery in the back door with a, a the delivery persons were, were bringing the, the products out to put in their trucks and he would get two or three things of rolls and fresh bread. And he'd let me take a few bites on the way home, but those are special times. And the first baseball game I ever went to at Cleveland Municipal Stadium was with my grandpa. That I think was in 1953 or 54. And we went by ourselves and we just had a great time. And that, that, that one trip always stayed with me. And you know, I, I wear a, a medal it's a Marion medal that, that he gave me in 1956, and I've kept this with me forever. And uh, I used to carry it in my pocket. I've lost it on a plane flying out to the death of one of my, my Jesuit mentors, and I found it on the way back in Minneapolis because I called the airlines and they thought it was hopeless, but they said they would look, and the cleaning crew found it and turned it in. So I picked it up on the way back in. But I've lost it on, on a sandy beach, I've lost it in a grassy field. In Cleveland, I lost it in, in uh, a snowy parking lot and didn't, couldn't find it again for about three weeks until the snow finally melted. But it's always come back. And Gina's rescued me a couple of times. And finally, she had enough sense to put this on a chain. So now I can't take it out of my pocket when I'm taking my keys out. But uh, I still, tense moments or moments of thought, I, I will hold on to this and just touch it and say a prayer. I've always had a great devotion to Mary. And 
when I was little, my mom had given me a statue of Mary. It was probably about, I don't know, six inches high. And I kept it on top of the, the heater in my room. And, and uh, each night before I went to bed, and each morning, I would kneel down in front of the statue and pray to Mary. And we always had a special bond. But, and we had a great youth growing up. And I had planted a tree behind our house. We first moved there. So I found this tree. It was about maybe eight inches high. And I put it in this big container of dirt during the winter, kept it in the garage, tried to keep it warm and watered. And in the following spring, I planted this in our backyard. So in 1954, you know, that even when we moved out of there, this tree kept growing and I would go back and visit the home. Almost every time I would go back to Cleveland, I visit all the houses I lived in and I'd always go and see that tree. Well, the last time I went there, the tree had been cut down and I, it just bummed me because this tree must've been, what about, uh, I guess it was over 60 years old. But um, and we had a great memory. You know, back in the day, we always called the kids the Catholic kids and the public school kids. And you never talked about the uh, city you were from. Not You wouldn't talk about Lake Oswego or where I lived in Lyndhurst. You'd always talk about your, your parish. So I said, where are you from? I'm from St. Clair. Even in high school, all the kids in high school at this Catholic high school would talk about the parish they were in because our lives centered around our Catholic faith and the parish. So. Today's episode is brought to you by Blanche House. Every human being deserves full human dignity and an opportunity to get back on their feet. No matter where you are or what you're doing, how can you make an impact in your community today? Visit BlancheHouse.org to learn more. Of course, I lived in a a parish that was uh, the Ursula nuns taught, and they were great teachers, but they were pretty strict disciplinarians too. <laughs> Family, my kids and I played baseball all day, and in the grade school, one time, Patrick, there we had this nun, Sister Ruth Marie, who was really a wonderful person. She looked probably she was looked like she was in her forties because they wore those tight habits. She was probably in her thirties or early thirties. Oh, she was a great athlete, and she would. Um, hit the ball farther than any kid, any eighth grader could. She's just amazing. And we'd go out and play for us. But anyway, one time we had these kids who kept going at it. Well, she went one day into her desk drawer and pulled out two sets of boxing gloves. And she took about maybe 15 boys out to form kind of a semicircle and had these two kids put on these boxing gloves. And she tied the gloves on at their wrists. And she said, okay, you're going to duke it out for three minutes. And they didn't hurt each other, but you could see that they got some of their anger out. At the end, she said, what do you think now? And these two guys just said, I'm sorry. And they hugged each other. It was one of the great lessons. Another one, Patrick, in seventh grade, had Sister Mary Alice, who was one of my role models. And she heard some of the foul language that was going on. And she taught us, instead of saying the F-bomb or the S-word, to say, oh, fish hooks. So that became my expression. I still use it periodically, but I had some great, great, experiences you know in grade school certainly and um, and with my family my kids and i played baseball we'd get to the field before eight o'clock and you got there first you got to claim the field and you'd play until you left so we would let the little kids play if they'd go home periodically and bring back we just get our milk in, in glass jugs and if they brought back water they could play an inning or two in the outfield so uh, we'd bring our lunches and just play all day long a lot of good things and um Baseball is always a central part of our lives growing up. And we played baseball on the streets and in our driveways. In our backyard, we made into a baseball field and drove our neighbor nuts because we used his 
working on as part of our outfield. But I don't know. I have great memories of going to games with my grandpa, obviously, and my dad. We, we had a very good childhood, and faith was always the center of that, Patrick. And uh, we'd go to Mass every Sunday together. We'd go to confession together, which was sometimes painful because, you know, the, we had a really tough pastor. And he would say, you did what? And we, whenever we went to confession in school, we had kind of agreement. The boys would try to distract the, the teacher and we'd skip into the, the other priest's line. And uh, if she didn't catch us, we were so happy. But uh, we had a great childhood, laughter and fun. And we celebrated life every day. Amazing. Unreal stories. If I'm hearing you correctly with all of that incredible wisdom and memories that you have, John, it sounds to me like your family have been phenomenal pillars in your life and they have kind of helped you institute some of the values that you currently have. How did they shape your path towards a Jesuit education? We had two great uncles on my dad's side who were Jesuit priests. And my dad had gone to uh, St. Ignatius High School in Chicago and to Xavier, a Jesuit university in Cincinnati. And they just always taught us the importance of prayer and faith. And you know, my sister and I, she was about a year and a half older than I, every May and October, we'd pick one day, and I forget which day it was, we would say a thousand Hail Marys on each of those days. We'd take turns because we got what was called a plenary indulgence. You'd, all your time in purgatory, if you confessed your sins, would be gone. So we thought, oh my gosh, we got to do this. And I don't know for how many years we did this, but it was for a while. But I think we learned responsibility and there were simple, simpler times, Patrick. You know, we had our, our, our bread and, and rolls and our butter and our milk and eggs delivered in our milk chute on the side of our house. And they'd come two or three times a week. And um, we had a party line phone so we shared with three other families. And sometimes we'd listen in on their conversations until our parents caught us doing that. But we just learned, I think, you know, to respect other people and to treat other people as we would like to be treated. We certainly weren't perfect. Uh, my mom never raised her voice, never. She would always just laugh or whistle or sing. And uh, I can remember one time I was probably a freshman in high school and I said in front of her the word damn. Well, I wish she had punished me, but instead she just looked, I was on the stairs and she was blowing. She, these big tears came into her eyes and she just turned and walked away. I never said a word like that in front of her again. And, you know, my dad was probably a little bit stricter, but then my parents had always believed in positive reinforcement and it just taught us, you know, goodness. We were very fortunate, but I think the importance of faith in our lives and, and treating each other with respect and making a difference, we never, ever learned racial bias. I mean, we just, that wasn't part of our vocabulary or, or our thoughts. And I remember one time in Chicago, uh, we went back to visit. I was probably eight years old or seven years old. And we went to a, a shopping a department store at Christmas my mom was with, just my mom and I. And in the one of the places near the bathrooms, there were two water fountains. One said colored and the other said white. And I had no idea what that meant. And it just, I still remember that. And, and I'm thinking even now, why do we treat people like that? Because of the color of their skin. But th that still exists today, Patrick. There's a huge amount of racial bias and, and I think almost persecution. And I don't understand that. I, to me, I, I just don't. Anyway, my, I had a great childhood. I really did. And I will always be thankful for my brothers and sisters and my mom and dad. And we did everything together. Go on vacations to visit my grandparents in North Carolina. They had a summer home there. 
is probably in the late 50s. Uh, there were obviously seven of us in this Ford Country Squire station wagon. And my dad got one of the first air conditioners in the history of the world. He put, was mounted in the front and he and mom would sit in the front and they were really cool in the front. And my dad would say, oh, don't worry. It'll soon be to the middle of the back seats while well, it never got to those seats. And we'd complain about that, but oh my gosh, we had great trips down there. and uh, Did a lot of things together as a family and family life was very important to us. And, and unless my dad was traveling, which wasn't often, we would have dinner together every single night. We'd talk about religion, what happened in school that day, and politics, and faith, and baseball. And there were 65 kids in this one classroom, taught by that Sister Ruth Marie, who was just a, a dynamic teacher. And, you know, I never got really good grades until eighth grade. Well, Janet always got straight A's. And <laughs> she came home at dinner for dinner one night and said, Johnny didn't know what the main export from China was. And I thought, why are you throwing me under the bus? But uh, it was rice, by the way. But the, um, we really were fortunate in life. And we had a great time together. And one lesson I'll tell you from dinner, you know, my dad was a, uh, a member of the Navy in World War II and was on a minesweeper in the South Pacific. And because of uh, the need by the Navy not to have their ships detected, their presence, they cut off all communication. So my sister was born and my dad didn't know if he had a son or a daughter for about three months, but my dad was one of them. There's a great, great book called The Greatest Generation by Tom Brokaw. And it talks about the spirit of World War II veterans. Now, they never talked about their experience and my dad never did. And we never knew until after he died, we were going through some of his belongings and came across his uniform in my mom's closet covered with two you know, coverings. And we took this on there, all kinds of medals, but he never, ever talked about what he had done in the war. And, to show, and he always told us how important it was to serve our country. But in the Vietnam War, so I was, this is when we had moved to another home, a larger home. But the, um, my one brother, who was two kids below me, uh, so he's, gosh, and has just turned uh, 70. But none of us wanted to go to the Vietnam War. Just by chance, I had a deferment because I was teaching. That wasn't my intention, but I needed a job. And I got that job, I, you know, when I was 20 years old, teaching full-time at a Jesuit school in Cincinnati while I was still going to Xavier. But Steve announced at dinner one night, a Sunday dinner, that he was going to apply to be a conscientious objector. If he didn't get that, he would move to Canada. My dad asked him a couple questions, and my dad just couldn't understand how one of us could do that. So my dad got up and left the table, didn't fight, but... It was a couple of weeks later, we were at dinner again, and he came back and he said, Steve, you know, I, I have a different way of looking at, at how to serve our country, but I will support you in this. If you want me to write a letter on your behalf for the draft board, I will do that. So he did, and Steve got a deferment because of that. But that was one of the, the big lessons my dad taught me, because I know it was totally against, you know, what he had grown up in and what he believed. He volunteered to go into the Second World War. He thought that was his obligation. And but, you know, Vietnam, we'll, we'll talk about the 60s later if you want, but that was just a very difficult time in all of our lives. So one of life's lessons from my dad. And speaking of service and all the phenomenal service that your dad gave our country, obviously you've been in, in Jesuit education for 53 years, if I'm not mistaken, serving so many countless communities, thousands of individuals, can you tell me how you got into a Jesuit education and some of your biggest takeaways from 
five plus decades of serving? My parents influenced me, certainly. The, uh, but I think my teachers at Ignatius High School in Cleveland really impacted me. And I didn't want to go to Ignatius. That was way on the other side of town. I had to take three buses and a train to get to and from school. And uh, the school I wanted to go to was a, a Marianist school, with, what's know, maybe four miles, three miles from our house. And all my buddies were going to Cathedral at. And I told my dad that. And my dad's boss and my eighth grade teacher wanted me to go to this school called Gilmore, which is extremely expensive. And I just didn't think I'd fit in there. So that's <laughs> probably in about sixth grade. My dad was, he said, going to look at cars on the west side of Cleveland. Well, it just happened to be this dealership was right across the street from St. Ignatius. I remember Zahner Ford. And we went there and my dad talked to the salesman, but he obviously wasn't going to buy a car. But he said, he turned around, there was a new gymnasium built in the name of this Father Sullivan, who had been the athletic director and uh, would actually become my teacher. But uh, he said, John, this is where I'd like you to go to school. I said, Dad, are you kidding? I said, this is a million miles from home. None of my buddies will be going here. And I want to go to Cathedral Latin. He said, well, he said, I hope you'll consider this. But when, when it came to eighth grade, I applied to Cathedral Latin and Gilmore and Ignatius. And Ignatius was pretty selective. It was a very good school. I think they had over a thousand applicants for a class of about 300. For the grace of God, I got in. But um, my dad said, you know, I'd like you to try that for one semester. If you don't like that, you can transfer to Cathedral Latin. So I said, okay. So I went to Ignatius and just fell in love with it. They were such tough and good teachers and personalities. And we had some really funny experiences. John Brower was my history teacher in freshman year. And uh, the first day of class, he gave us all these instructions. He was about 6'4", still holds the Ignatius scoring record in basketball. I think it's 51 points. He was giving us all these rules and he turned around and our class was in the, the Jesuit cloister because the school was so crowded. He took his fist, he said, you will never cheat in this classroom. You will always work very hard and hit the slate board and it cracked from the top of the board to the bottom. He sent us a message, well, no one ever cheated in that class. But we became great friends afterwards. And you know, he was on his deathbed and I, I, he lived in California then and I didn't get married until he was in his 50s. And I wrote to him and his, his wife wrote back and said, your letter meant so much. And I, I told him about that that incident also that our class started at 12.15. And he always told us, you'll never forget that the Magna Carta was signed at 12.15 because that's when our class starts. And so I wrote a couple of anecdotal things in the letter and he and I stayed in touch until he died. But she said he he had the letter on his nice nightstand the last eight months of his life and he would have her read this to him. But those kind of things. And But the greatest influence were probably by that Father Sullivan who taught me theology and also my Latin teachers, uh, Mr. Metzger, who was studying to become a Jesuit, and Mr. Dixon. They both became long-term Jesuit priests, but I always wanted to be Father Dixon. He was so enthusiastic. He was very athletic. Um, he was a dynamo in the classroom, and he just taught us to do things the right way. And we, have stayed in, we stayed in touch even after I graduated, but I had left thinking, if I come to be a teacher, I want to study classics and come back and be Mr. Dixon. So I majored in Latin in college and had, I think, 36 hours of Latin, 21 of Greek. And I just, I love languages. And I started teaching in my senior year in college uh, because the local Jesuit high school needed a couple of people to teach part-time. And by the end of July, after my junior year in college, they called, said, we need you to teach full-time. And I didn't think I could. So 
the priest called us, there were two of us, they picked out of 19 they interviewed. And I went down there for this interview and I told my friend, the other teacher, that we would not settle for less than $3,000 a year, which seemed like a lot, but we were not college graduates yet. We weren't uh, certified. Father Gellin got us into his office and had us sit down. He said, you know, I know this is problematic for you too, but we want you to be here, but we can't possibly pay you more than $4,750. Well, we thought we were millionaires. So we signed on the dotted line right then. And, but that was a very tough year for me. Um, I was dating a girl in Milwaukee. I had my comps coming up 16 hours at Xavier in the fall and 12 in the spring. I almost failed my comps. I, you know, it was just really difficult, but uh, I got through that year. And it, it, I think in April of that year, one of my old theology teachers, Father Lenhardt, called me from Ignatius and said, there's going to be an opening in Latin. Would you like to come back here and teach? And I said, oh, yes. So I applied for that job and I got that. And that was my dream. I thought I would retire from Ignatius. I learned so much from that school. And I just embraced that. You know, I was a, a Latin teacher. I was a counselor. I coached track and cross country for 10 years. Um, I just, I really, you know, I was a crazy teacher. You know, I would dress up in a toga and sometimes walk across the top of the kid's desk. They were linked together, three desks at a time. And I would walk because I had this golden rule, the golden rule of Latin. And I would just tap the kids on the shoulder. And we all, we had great fun. They, they would carry me into the classroom on a litter around my birthday. And they, they just, we, we had chariot races. The kids built chariots. We had chariot races. I love teaching, but I, I don't think I became an, even a good teacher until probably my fourth year at Ignatius, because I know people won't believe this, but you probably won't either. But I was so introverted, introverted when I was young. And it took me, I think, time to realize that, that I could make a difference and that kids made a difference in my life. And, you know, uh, I remember kids camping on our front lawn at our home, which was probably 13 miles from school. And they would come and camp on our front lawn. When I turned uh, 30, somehow the kids got a picture of me in my Davy Crockett suit for Halloween. And uh, with my three, three of my three brothers, and we all had these outfits on, and they blew this up to life size and got the school to hang this in the main entryway of the school. You know, happy 30th birthday, Mr. Gladstone. And all day long, I was getting harassed. And the kids brought in a tombstone to my classroom, you know, because I was so old at 30. But Ignatius changed my life when I was a student and when I was teaching. And I, I really, but this Father Dixon, who's now Father Dixon, or was Father Dixon, but We've stayed in touch after all these years, Patrick, and in college and beyond that. And he developed cancer about six years ago. It started as esophageal cancer, and it spread to his lungs and his liver after that. And, uh, the last couple of years have been pretty tough. And the last probably eight months of his life, we would talk two or three times a week. And that was always a highlight for me. And we talk about, I always talk about how he changed my life. And he he sent me some things he had written about the importance of being, if you're a Christian, you have to be a mystic and believe in the presence of God everywhere. He taught me so much and he sent me, you know, podcasts and talks that he had done. And he, to the very end, you know, he changed my life. And he died in January of this year. And uh, that's left a hole in my life. He has just been a special person. But other people at Ignatius too, my math teacher, my geometry teacher, Mr. Bitson, really helped me. He tutored me in the classroom two or three times a week till I really caught on. Mr. Murphy taught me history as a sophomore. He had polio and could only exist in a, uh, in a wheelchair with oxygen all the time. And he became a dear friend too. And I had some real role models in that. And even as I taught Father O'Reilly, I'll tell you one more, you know, I think of tough times in my life. And I look back when my 
maternal grandfather died, it was just such a tough time for me. And when my son Joe was uh, just eight months old, he developed something called Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And it's, a, it's an autoimmune deficiency disease. And they think it was caused by a, a drug called Keflex but in, in his reaction to this Keflex. But he was in the hospital at the Cleveland Clinic for many weeks. And he was the youngest person at the Cleveland Clinic ever to have this disease and to develop hepatitis with it. And his skin peeled off three or four times and he, he had these bleeding and oozing sores in any mucous membrane area, his anus, his mouth, his nose. And we had to feed him with a, an eyedropper. And on New Year's Day, they told us he wasn't going to make it. So I called my, my dad. This was about maybe, I don't know, 1130 in the morning. I was down at the hospital with, you know, Joe and my dad said, I'm crying on the phone. I, I said, he said, what can I do? And he said, would you call Father O'Reilly at Ignatius? I was teaching at Ignatius at the time. I said, just ask him to pray for Joe. So he called Father O'Reilly and Father said, I'll say mass for, for Joe right now. So he went in and said mass, maybe just coincidence, but by 1230, when mass had finished, Joe had made a dramatic turnaround and he came back to life. And the power of faith and the power of relationships. And Father Ryan and I became great friends. I was the head cross-country coach and he was my assistant. We became great friends over the years. And I became his boss and I became principal at Walsh Jesuit. He, he was a teacher there and I was his boss. It was so ironic because he had been president at Ignatius. Life lesson, just, uh, so I've been so blessed by all of my ties to the Jesuits in my career. And, you know, Patrick, I started as a Latin teacher. I told you at Ignatius, then I went out to Bellarmine Prep in Tacoma as their VP for development without a whole lot of experience. And I developed a great relationship with Father Dan Weber, who's the president there, and actually was one of the founding Jesuits at Jesuit High School in Portland. And he helped pick out the, the uniforms and the colors of the uniforms. And I only stayed there for three years, went back to become principal at Walsh Jesuit. And Father Weber came back and visited us maybe eight times after that. And he was always had my family out. We'd stay at the Jesuit Villa for our vacation every run, maybe every year for about, I don't know, eight years. He became a real mentor for me too. But then, then I became principal at Walsh Jesuit. And I was the first lay principal, not only in that, pro, in that school, but also in the entire Detroit, Chicago province. And um, it was an awakening because I went there and uh, there was a lot of pushback from some of the alums in particular. I was told by one of the board members, you can never do the job a Jesuit could do. And I didn't vote for you. And you, you should just know that. My first couple of years were tough, but the, uh, I think the uh, community got tired of me saying I'm going to be okay. And so, but I love those years. And I stayed there as principal for eight years and I was going to leave. And the president said, would you please stay? And they, they created a new role for me. But as principal, I was the admission director and the principal. I didn't know this when I took the job, but their freshman class was down to 146 kids. And they wanted, I think, 190 or 200. And there was talk of going co-ed. And I said, if you go co-ed, do it because it's the right thing for, to do for the kids, not just because your enrollment is down. So I asked them to give me a year. And within a year and a half, Patrick, our, our enrollment had gone from 146 to 215. And I would host dinners in people's homes in West Akron and parts of Cleveland. And I'd tell people, if you host this, you have to promise to bring at least eight kids, eight families that have kids in seventh and eighth grade. 
if you provide a snack, uh, the school will pay for that. No one ever requested reimbursement. We, we did those kind of things. And, you know, that school went co-ed the same year Jesuit did. And, but I was gone. But they, they did it for the right reason, because not because enrollment was down, because it was the right thing for the kids. Like Jesuit out here, they blossomed as a school after they became co-ed. But, and then after that, Patrick, I went to become the Dean of Admission and Financial Aid at John Carroll University, a Jesuit school on Cleveland's east side, and stayed there for 15 years. And the last six or seven, I had become the Vice President for, uh, Associate uh, Vice President for Enrollment Management, which really helped change the game there. But I thought I would retire from there, but then several people, four, I think, say I should look at the job at Jesuit high school and I said no I'm not going to move back out there and you know my you know my mom had just died a couple years before that if she had been alive I wouldn't have done that but I kept getting these emails and phone calls so anyway I applied it must have been a very bad pool because they ended up picking me but the uh there were four interviews and only on the fourth interview was I invited to come to campus I think they really wanted to uh keep the process kind of quiet but Anyway, Jesuit's the best place I've ever worked. You know, the community, campus ministry, the way kids and faculty treat each other. And one story I always remember, well, two stories. One, when I came to visit for the first interview that day, I wasn't sure where I was going. And it was at a class change. And these two girls passed me and said, oh, can we help you? I was obviously lost. And I said, well, I'm just trying to find this office. And one of them started to tell me where it was. And the other one said, oh, come on, we'll walk you over there. So they reversed course and took me right to the office where I was going. I thought that was something special. They were probably late for class. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll tell them where we were. And the other one was um, on the, that last interview day, I got my schedule and I'd heard about this Friday mass, but it, it wasn't on the schedule. And I said to Mrs. Satterberg, who was the principal, I said, do you think I could go to mass? She said, sure, it, you know, it's after first period. So I got to go to this mass. It was in the theater in those days. It was absolutely packed. And Father Robinson, you know, who was probably a hundred then, no, he's probably in his sixties then, but or maybe early seventies. And he said mass, and you know, he looked over the top of his glasses, these big bushy eyebrows, and he just looked mean. And I thought, my gosh, if so many kids and faculty would be here to be at this mass, and the kiss of peace was an adventure. I'd never seen anything like that. How kids treated each other. That was a, a big impact in why I came out to Jesuit so. But there, you know, it's, it's a remarkable place, Patrick. And graduate from Jesuit, make a difference in the world because of the families they grew up in, but because I think Jesuit pushed them, you know, to make the harder choice and become involved. And service is such a part of what we do and the reflections that they make. Uh, my wife, Gina, and I got to go down to Ecuador. It was my second trip to Ecuador because I, I got to do that when I was working at John Carroll. I convinced Jesuit that they should do that. They were the really first school, I think, west of the Mississippi that went down to Guayaquil. And I looked at how the kids spent time an hour after dinner reflecting on what they had seen that day. They talk about in whom they had seen the face of Christ that day and they, they wrote their reflections down. And so those kind of things, but just it's the way people treat each other with the respect. And Jesuit's not a perfect place, but it, it has taught me so much. And I honestly mean this, I think I've gained more at Jesuit than I've given. And that, that Jesuits changed my life, but Every school I've been, I've been in has done that. So I'm really blessed with these opportunities. Well, you've made a phenomenal difference in so many people's lives, including my own. And, and so your, your impact, your legacy on all of these schools and the way that you've been able to live out so concretely your faith 
in such a state of gratitude. And I think that's one thing as I'm hearing you tell these remarkable stories and just I'm captivated. And our, I'm sure our listeners are just beaming. They're just, everyone is so excited with everything you're sharing. The way that you, again, have approached life with such a grace and gratitude, especially in a time today where life perhaps is not as simple as it was when you grew up. There's more distractions than ever. There's more, again, social media technologies advancing. However, I still firmly believe that we can cultivate and find that stillness and that same peace and joy every single day. And you've shown that throughout your 53 years uh, at Jesuit schools all across the, the whole world, the whole country. You've been able to help people walk in that faith and that gratitude. How important, John, is it that each of us nowadays continually strive to live that life uh, in a state of faith and gratitude? Well, I think, Patrick, you know, we have an obligation to make the world a better place. This isn't just a, oh, I'm on this wonderful trip. And I think we have to give back. And I, I can look back to some things. I talked about my family and the teachers that influenced me. I'll tell you another quick story. The uh, When I, my first year teaching at Ignatius, I don't think, other than a couple of kids in my class at Ignatius, I didn't know really any African-Americans. And Ignatius, which had an enrollment then of probably about 12 or 1300 had maybe, maybe 10 African-American kids in the whole school. Well, there were two priests who were very involved with these kids and they knew I had an interest in, in making a difference with that. So they invited me to, to go on Tuesdays and Thursdays down to this parish on Cleveland's east side, a tough neighborhood, 83rd and Quincy. And uh, we would get these kids in every Tuesday and Thursday and tutor them for two hours in the parish and then sometimes we'd drive them home afterwards and it taught me so much i became really close to these kids and i can i can remember all 10 names i could rattle them off but i won't do that to you but you know one of the kids uh, ended up dying in prison another kid committed suicide and i used to take these kids home a lot after school and their neighborhoods where they grew up in were just so difficult and uh, we talk about their experiences and a lot of the kids would bring a different set of clothes when they got out of their neighborhood, when they got to Ignatius, they would change what they were wearing to fit the dress code at Ignatius. But they were too frightened or embarrassed to go back to their neighborhoods and wear fancier clothes, shirts with a collar and no tennis shoes. And it was, I learned so much and how they struggled as families, but oh my gosh, the faith dimension. And I went to several funerals of their family members and I learned so much about the African-American way of worshiping. And, and how they embraced life. Their services were so much more uplifting than, than the Catholic faith because we were always so solemn and their songs were riveting. But uh, I got to know a lot of those families and that really changed my life. And I think when I came out to Jesuit, I can remember telling the board, you know, if you hire me, I don't believe in full cost tuition. So if that's your path, please don't, you know, hire me. But I said, I think we have an obligation to reach out to a wider mix of students. So including those of color, but also a socioeconomic mix that reflected more of the society that we lived in. So the board promised me that every year, no matter what the tuition increase was, financial aid would go up at a higher percentage. And for all my years, I think even now that that continued to happen. So we expanded our base, Patrick. And I think when I got there, diversity was probably at about 14%. And now I think it's over 40%. So it's a tremendous growth. And the other thing was financial aid. I think it was about $890,000 total for the year when I first got there. 
and now it's over 34 3.4 million dollars for one year so the school has changed and the board the board and the school have kept up that commitment and i think paul hogan and sandy satterberg and tom arndorfer and others on the board and how they just transformed that school and uh, you know you always think that the uh, successor is going to destroy blow up the one good thing you tried to do but mr arndorfer has taken all these things to a new level and yeah, I, I think we have an obligation to change the world. And it starts with, with every single day. Every time you greet a person or every time you greet a family, you just, you've got to look them in the eye and you've got to, you know, uh, one more quick story. When I was uh, principal at Walsh Jesuit, we had a, a priest who came in as the second president there, Father John McGrail, who was in his late seventies then, had been provincial for the Detroit province, Detroit and Chicago provinces. And, and I said, John, how, how do you change lives so easily? So we'll just, just watch sometimes. So there was a mama came in, I forget what her gripe was, but she insisted on seeing Father McGrail and she was pretty upset. So I, I went down the hall and watched him walk out of his office to meet her. And she was kind of angry and he said, well, what's your name? I'm Mrs. So-and-so. I said, what's your first name? And she looked at him and she said, I don't know, Michelle or something. He came up and held her hand and he said, I'm John McGrail, how can I help you? And there was this woman who came in, she's probably in her late 30s, angry as can be. And right away, he disarmed her by showing he really cared. And he held her hand and looked her right in the eye. And I thought, oh my gosh. And that reminded me when I was teaching at Ignatius, uh, that Father O'Reilly, who I mentioned had said mass for my son, Joe, was president. Well, Father Pedro Arupe, who was the head of all the Jesuits, he was the Father General at the time, was visiting Ignatius. So Jim O'Reilly asked me to come down after my class and meet Father Rupe. Well, I, he's a little guy, he's probably five, six. Uh, and this is before he had a stroke and had to step down from the, the Father Generalship. But he walked up to me and he held my hand and he said, John, I'm Pedro Rupe. Why do you work in Jesuit education? And I, I was probably 30 years old then and 32. And he held my hand. I was the most important person in his life in that moment. And I will never forget the impact that made. And that and Father McGrail's reaching out to parents have taught me to, to try to greet people where they are and to understand they come in with, with a, a lot of hurt in their lives, but, but more promise in their lives. And I think it's really important to try to lift people up and not just find Jesus or God in them, but you've got to bring God and Jesus to them. And I think that's really important. I think you're spot on. I truly believe that each one of us, every single day, has an opportunity to change the world. And how do we do that? It's how we treat others. It's how we love others. It's how we love ourselves. Even if we have two seconds with another person in a certain environment, in a certain situation in this earth, that two seconds has the opportunity to change your life. And as you said, John, you don't know what someone is going through. We barely can, I mean, begin to scratch the surface of someone's story, that five-star movie that each of us are living out, this beautiful story of pain and suffering and joy and trauma and life and, and messiness. And so I think you are absolutely spot on and you, every interaction, no matter if it's two minutes, an hour, 10 days or a year is lived out as if, it's your last. And so on behalf of everyone who has gotten to know you and experience your love that you share, thank you. You're doing that. Yeah. You're living that out every day. You know, one of the great things for me, 
I still, Patrick, get letters or emails now from kids I taught 50 years ago. And one guy, he was captain of our cross country team. He was in my, and I caught him cheating on a test. Got a zero on that, but he wrote me a letter years later and said, I want to thank you for correcting me in the way you did. And he said, I was wrong. And he said, I hope you forgive you. And I wrote back and I said, I forgave you a long time ago because you, you really understood what you had done wrong. I don't know. I think you have impact on kids, Pat, that you don't understand in the moment. And I, I can think back to the teachers I didn't thank enough or the kids I didn't thank enough or uh, even way I, I live my life. And I think the importance of family, not just my siblings, but my kids and my wife, Gina, and the struggles I've had in my life, the crises and, and just, you know, in my darkest moments, you know, times of surgery, you know, about 12 years ago, or, you know, Gina and my kids were always there. And, I had that surgery and they took out a kidney years ago. The day before, my kids made me walk up to a, we walked to a pumpkin patch about a mile from our home and, and got all these pumpkins because I think Halloween was the three days after that. So we carved all the pumpkins at night. They wouldn't let me carry anything home, but they, they carried, we carried about eight pumpkins. We carried everything home. And then the day of my surgery, my son, Joe, and, and my son, Jim, my daughter, Lisa, and Gina, they made me walk to the hospital dragging my bag behind me and it was the best moment it was so uplifting and you know even after i had that fall in spain when i had that, that brain injury one of our benefactors offered to gina to fly me back from spain in his private plane just but the outpouring of, of concern and you know, i've been so blessed in my life patrick by my family and my faith and the friends i have and uh, by people like you and it just you know let me tell you one last thing unless you have other questions I've told my kids from the time they were probably six months old, I go into their, their rooms at night where they were sleeping and I'd say a prayer over them. And, and I start telling them the three things in life, pray each day, make the world a better place and always give your best. And that goes, and I think if you asked all seven of my kids, they could still tell you that, you know, look beyond yourself. And you said it, Patrick, and if you want to help others, you've got to believe in yourself and feel good about yourself and knowing that you're not perfect. But, you know, God doesn't make trash. God gave us abilities to, to make the world better. And I, I mean, when I get up every morning, the first thing I do is pray for my family, that they're safe and healthy and happy. And then I ask God, don't let me screw up too much today. That was my message to Jesuit. Don't let me screw up a Jesuit today. Hey, if you're not falling short of intended goals, if you're not scraping your knees or you're not out there living and experiencing life. You know, failure is not, not a bad thing. We all fail in life. I think the, the real sadness is when people give up after tripping or falling. You know, I, I have fallen so many times in my life, but because of my family and my faith and my friends, I've always had the chance to do things over or to make things better. John, if you could leave each of our listeners with a call to action. You talked about making this world a better place, waking up every day with the attitude of going out and changing the world. If you knew that there were people listening uh, who needed a source of inspiration and motivation as you are to myself and so many other people, what would be your call to action for, for someone to go out and, and change the world? Patrick, I think we're all called to be servant leaders. And that requires, I think, a sense of humility, you know, patience, kindness, and, and you know, really to turn the other cheek, but also it, it forces us to do the right thing. And, we live in a world now that's not as simple as it was when I was growing up in the 50s. How do we deal with things like racism and poverty and the malice distribution of income? And 
Um, how do we make the world better? I look about our environment, what we're leaving our kids. So I hope we become good listeners and that we really make a genuine effort to listen, to not always have to be right, but to provide an alternate path. But faith without acts of service is really empty. And I think, you know, instead of just saying things, we have to do things. What is the Jesuit call to each of us? Live out your faith through concrete action. Get out there and use your hands to love and serve through voice, through action, and through purpose. All things that you have done and teach us every day, John. Maybe. I try. <laughs> Thank that. I just want to express my gratitude for, for you today, but also for the opportunities I've always had. You are. You continue to inspire me every day. John Gladstone on Living Is You. It doesn't get anything better than this. You keep changing the world, too. Thanks, Patrick, Thank very much. God bless. Give your family my best. Living Is You is produced and edited by myself, Patrick Quinn, and is sponsored by the Inspiring Children Foundation and the Stedman Clinic. Life is best lived in the present moment. Let's continue to let our best self shine through exercise, sleep, and mindfulness practices. Our music today was created by current freelance producer and editor, Bruno Jomedes Duarte. You can find more of Bruno's music at brunohd.com or check out his latest work on Spotify. Our unsung hero this week is James McGee. James is a former top 150 professional tennis player in the world and is currently working alongside the Inspiring Children Foundation and No Quit Tennis Academy in Las Vegas. This week, James exhibited the utmost class and respect in the Vegas Cup Tennis Tournament, helping make the second year event a remarkable success. Thank you, James, for your incredible listening skills and being willing to drop everything in order to help another person. Next week, we explore the workings of the NCAA with current executive vice president, Stan Wilcox. You can tune in on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to hear the full story. Thank you to all of our listeners, supporters, and inspiring leaders. Living as you would not be possible without your inspirational stories of authentic living. You can learn more about the podcast at pquin.org or support us through anchor.com. If this episode spoke to you in any way, please consider supporting us or leaving your thoughts on Apple Podcasts. And until we meet again, don't forget to keep living as you. I'm Patrick Quinn. This is Living As You. See you next week.